1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word. Let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you have inspired your word, the scripture that we hold in our hands, the words that we meditate on day and night, and how we find it to be a delight to our soul. We know that the word requires of us obedience, and oftentimes we find it difficult to obey because we sense the tension between the spirit and the flesh. And we ask that your spirit who dwells within us, who have called Christ our Lord and Savior, will convict us of the truths of your word, but also empower us to live out its truths in our lives. And that as the word is preached this morning, that it would convict us once more. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when I was growing up as a child, I watched the film Titanic on the small screen rather than on the silver screen, meaning that my family watched the film Titanic in the comfort of our living room rather than going to the theater to watch this film. Somehow, somewhere, some way, my aunt had obtained a copy of the film Titanic even though it was still being shown in the movie theaters. As we popped in the DVD, we relaxed in our living room, we watched the cinematic journey unfold. And every so often, if you watched the film carefully enough, you would see a silhouette of a person's head bop up and down, because you know that it was being recorded in a movie theater. Now, for those of you who don't know, a bootleg film is a film that someone takes a camcorder back in the day into the movie theater to record the film, and then sell the recording later. And I was watching a bootleg version of the Titanic. And my conscience at that time had no issue with it. In fact, I thought it was perfectly fine. So flash forward five to seven years, I'm studying abroad in China, 
And in China, on every street corner, there are DVDs being sold of the latest films. Films that were be showing, being shown back home in the United States. Movies such as Batman Begins or Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And so my conscience being clear, I decided to fill out my DVD collection a little bit at these street corners. Again, my experience in the past with the Titanic affected how my conscience operated in a future context. And oftentimes, our experiences, what has happened in the past, sometimes shape and even influence how our conscience operates in the present. Let's say in the past jobs that you've had, you've had the opportunity to borrow some office supplies. Because, you know, at the end of the month, the office always restocks the supply cabinet. So when you go to your next job, borrowing some office supplies isn't so bad. Or maybe you grew up going to stay home rather than going out to eat that you would actually eat more often at home rather than going out to restaurants in order to save your family some money. But then, in college, you find it kind of odd that you go out so often, or more often than you used to. Or maybe in a dating relationship, in a prior relationship, you thought that kissing was okay. So then you would expect in your future relationships, dating would be okay as well that our prior experiences oftentimes shape and inform how our conscience operates in the present. But should experiences or even temperament be the only things that shape our conscience? After all, we all have one. It tells us right from wrong. But what should mold it? What should shape it? After all, we know that it's important to have a good conscience. The Bible talks about that. But then how do we actually experience the blessing of having a good conscience? To answer that question, we're going to turn to a letter written by Peter, uh, titled 1 Peter, in our Bibles. And this particular letter was written to an audience of Christians who were in the midst or in the cusp of much suffering, that persecution for the Christian faith was forthcoming. And Peter wrote this particular letter to keep them encouraged to persevere in their faith. But Peter also mentions the phrase good conscience twice, specifically in chapter 3. And so in this text that Laney read for us, we're going to go through three questions. And I will give you each of the questions one at a time. So the first question that we need to really ask ourselves is, what makes a conscience good? What makes a conscience good? And according to Peter, what makes a conscience good is a new identity. That a new identity undergirds a good conscience. That a new identity in Christ serves as the foundation, as the structural beams that support a good conscience. That a new identity undergirds a good conscience, and specifically, a new identity in Christ. Now we see that Peter reminds his readers that a new identity in Christ leads to receiving a good conscience. That when we place our faith in Christ, we receive a conscience that is good. Uh, we see this specifically 
in verse 21. It says this, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now we see here in verse 21 that a new identity in Christ is received or depicted through baptism. And we see that specifically in verse 21. Baptism, if you know kind of the background for this particular word, it comes with the metaphor or the context of dyeing cloth. That you would take a white cloth as a dyer and baptize it in a specific color. So if you take a white cloth and you wanted it purple, you would baptize it in purple. The white cloth then becomes the color purple. It is no longer white. And likewise, when a believer is baptized, it symbolizes the new identity that he or she receives that is in Christ. And we see that this idea of baptism sometimes can be misinterpreted or misunderstood that you need to be baptized to get your sin removed. Uh, we see Peter correcting this particular idea uh, in verse 21 where it says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So the idea here, not as a removal of dirt from the body, Peter is trying to say that when you are baptized, you're not going to get baptized to be bathed. You're not going to get baptized to take a shower. This is not the place to get physically clean. Now, the word body here, in the NASB, the translation would render the word body as the flesh. And so, Peter here is trying to say that when you are getting baptized, you're not just getting cleansed from aspects of your flesh, because the flesh represents our sinful disposition towards selfishness and towards ourselves rather than towards others. He's saying that when you get baptized, it's not about removing your sins per se so much as it is receiving a new identity. Otherwise, every time you lie, every time you say something mean, we would need to put you back through baptism. We would need to baptize you every single time you do something wrong. And that Peter is saying that's not what baptism is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a representative or representation of a new identity. And we see that even in the words he uses in verse 21, which says this, which corresponds to this. That phrase is one word, antitupon, which is the word which we get antitype. And the word antitype is a word that's used oftentimes in stamping. That when you stamp something, it leaves an impression. And the impression is the antitype. So that the baptism corresponds to your identity in Christ. And oftentimes, even in ancient churches, they would demonstrate this by actually putting the baptismal font outside the sanctuary. So that every time you came in to worship, you had to pass by the baptistry to remember that in order for you to be admitted into the church family, in order for you to partake in the Lord's Supper, in order for you to receive the justification from Christ, you had to be baptized. And even some of these baptistries were shaped in the cross so that you'd walk into the cross and you would walk out of it symbolizing 
your new life. That baptism symbolizes a new life in Christ. Now, your new life in Christ then leads to a receiving of a good conscience. We see this in verse 21 again. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, we see in verse 20 in this idea of an appeal. The word appeal in the New International Version, in NIV, is actually the word pledge. That when we have a new identity in Christ, we have made a solemn pledge to God. It's as though at baptism we raise our right hand and we say, I solemnly swear to follow the Lord all the days of my life and renounce the ways of this world that that is what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes a turning away, but it's also a pledge. And the pledge also reminds me of how five years ago, Josephine put a wedding ring on my finger, representing a pledge that she will be with me through thick and thin till death do we part. And likewise, I also put a ring on her finger as a pledge to remind her that I will also do the same as well. And when we make that pledge through baptism and receive this new identity, our conscience is now hypersensitive. That the Holy Spirit empowers our conscience to be more sensitive to things that we may have not been sensitive to before. So think with me for a moment of the example of a Marvel superhero. Think of Spider-Man, okay? So prior to his encounter with a radioactive spider, Peter Parker had the normal senses, taste, smell, sight, hearing. But then later, after he encounters or gets bitten by this radioactive spider, then he gets to these extraordinary abilities extraordinary strength, the ability to crawl on walls, the ability to jump very high. But there is also a sense that he gets hypersensitive, which is his spider sense, right? That he's able to sense when danger is near so that he could respond accordingly. It's as though when we become believers, when we have our new identity in Christ, our conscience, which we had a sense of before, has now been heightened to a greater degree to warn us from right and wrong. And to make us wonder, in different contexts, are we going to do things that express a love for God and also a love for other people? So something that we need to think about is we need to think about how our identity in Christ really increases the sensitivity of our conscience how it increases the ability for the conscience to really zone in on certain things and to really wonder, is it right or wrong? For instance, before I had a better understanding of biblical truth and what the Word said, I had this understanding or belief that dating non-believers was okay. I thought that for a believer to be in a relationship with a non-believer was all right. But it wasn't until I studied God's Word and began came to a greater understanding of passages such as 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, which talks about being married unto the Lord, or the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, where it talks about not being unequally yoked to a non-believer. And this began to change my conscience, say, you know what? Because of what the Bible says, my conscience now has been stirred and now believe that dating non-believers is actually unbiblical and is sinful. And how 
the Lord used the word and also my identity in Christ to make myself more sensitive even to the topic of dating. Now, there are other ways that the conscience will sensitize you as well. It could be either work, when you clock in, when you clock out. It could be your study, what it looks like. It could be your dress or even the films that you watch. That we need to think about how our identity in Christ really increases the sensitivity of our conscience and what it is telling us to do. So what makes a conscience good? It's a new identity that undergirds that good conscience. Then the second question, well, how did Christ then establish this new identity? How did Christ establish your new identity? Well, it was through his suffering. That Christ's suffering established our new identity in him. Uh, Peter reminds us that Christ's suffering dealt with four things, four aspects, four elements. The first element that Christ's suffering dealt with is the idea of sin's authority. Now, we see this in verse 18. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And so Peter is focusing on Christ's suffering because if you recall, he's writing to an audience that is on the cusp of experiencing persecution, on the cusp of being physically harmed for their faith. And it's interesting, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, you see that Peter writes to a series of churches in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, to the churches that Paul once ministered to. And you might be wondering, well, why is Peter writing to these churches? It's because these churches who once had Paul as an apostle ministering to them, Paul might have been martyred or is in the process of getting martyred at this moment. And they may be wondering, is the suffering worth it? And Peter points them back to the suffering of Christ and how it dealt with sin. That sin's authority had been broken. And notice how in verse 18 it talks about the righteous for the unrighteous. That Jesus, who was blameless, who did nothing wrong, who lived a life that was perfect, and yet he had to suffer in order to bring about benefit. And benefit for people who are ostracized from God, a people who did not deserve a relationship with God either. And we see that Christ's suffering not only dealt with sin, but it also dealt with our separation from God. If you look at verse 18 again, it says this, that he might bring us to God, that the suffering of Christ bridged a chasm that separated us from God, that only through Christ's suffering could we actually draw near to God, not by the blood of goats or sheep, but by the blood of our Savior, by Jesus Christ. So Christ's suffering dealt with sin's authority. It also dealt with our separation from God. But it also dealt with our flesh. If you look again at verse 18, Peter writes, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, the word flesh here refers to the body of Christ that died, but how the spirit raised him to new life and to a new body. Now, oftentimes, as I said before, when we think about the word the flesh and any reference of it in the New Testament, refers to the sinful disposition within us that remains, even though we've placed our faith in Christ. 
And this body that we have and that we inhabit won't be dealt with until Christ returns or until we are raised after death to new life, where we receive a new body that will have no sin. And the fourth thing that Christ's suffering dealt with is spiritual forces. Uh, We see this in verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, verse 19 and verse 20 are some of the most controversial passages or verses in the New Testament. So, I won't go through all the possible options of interpreting verse 19 and verse 20. That should be reserved for a Sunday school class. But I'm going to tell you what I think these two verses actually talk about. I think verse 19 and verse 20 are talking about how Jesus, through his suffering, through his death and resurrection, is proclaiming victory over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, how do I see that? Well, in verse 19, we see the word spirits in prison. Now, oftentimes, when spirits is referred to in the New Testament, it refers to heavenly beings. Now, angels would not be in prison, so therefore, spirits in prison refers to those who are fallen angels. Now, you may be wondering, well, what would fallen angels have to do with this particular passage? Well, if you look in verse 20, it talks about the days of Noah. Now, if you can play back your Old Testament footage and you think about Genesis chapter 6, you'll remember that there were angels that came down from heaven and had sexual relations with women here on earth. And these are angels that were fallen. Okay? Now, when we look at the word proclaimed in verse 19, the question is, what is Jesus proclaiming? Some people believe that he is proclaiming the gospel. But the word here for proclamation is not the typical word used to proclaim the gospel, but it's a general word talking about general heralding. And I think that in this context, Jesus, at his resurrection, proclaimed the idea that I have now won. The authority of spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places has now been broken. D-Day has commenced. So Christ's suffering not only dealt with our sin, but it dealt with the authority of spiritual forces of evil in the world, and that has now even been broken as well. Now, what is the point of trying to understand the suffering of Christ? Is that we need to be able to understand the suffering of Christ so that we can find strength to follow your conscience. Because as your conscience is more sensitive, we need to be able to find the ability, the strength to know that because Christ now has victory, we too can follow our conscience, even though it may be unpopular, even though it may not be light, that we follow our conscience in those moments. Let's say at work, you're supposed to give a report, and your boss says, well, the numbers don't look very good. Can you do something about that? And you know, hey, you're not supposed to fix the report, but your conscience is moved to say, you know what? I don't think I should fix the report. And are you willing to follow through, even at the loss of your job or even the loss of your position, to report what is right? Or maybe your boss asks you to work some overtime, but he says, you know, I really need you to work a few extra hours on this project could you not record it on your timesheet? And you know, it's against company policy to do that. 
You know that you have to report every single hour that you work. And so do you have the strength to follow your conscience to either record it or to call the ethics office? How do you find the strength to follow your conscience? And that strength can only be found by knowing that Christ has attained a victory that goes far beyond whatever context we may find ourselves in. So whatever context it might be, whether it be in school where your friend is asking you to borrow your homework assignment because he hasn't finished his, that we need to find the strength to know that in Christ's suffering, even though he was despised, even though he was disliked, even though he was shamed, he attained something good. That oftentimes in those contexts we find our consciences peaked, our consciences moved, that we find strength to actually follow it. For oftentimes we know that suffering accompanies things that are good. I think of an Olympic athlete. An open Olympic athlete that wants to win a gold medal has to undergo some suffering. They have to change their diet. They can't go to Chick-fil-A every Sunday or every Saturday because Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays, right? You, I mean, he can't eat what he wants to eat. And he also has to maintain a rigorous exercise regimen that is a form of suffering in order to win a gold medal. And as students, you have to suffer through exams and through tests and through studying in order to receive a diploma. And these things pale in comparison to the suffering of Christ to attain our salvation. And so we find strength knowing that Christ, who is good, who is righteous, who suffered for a good thing, that we can also face suffering to do what our conscience tells us to do. Now, what is the blessing of a good conscience? Well, the blessing of a good conscience is that it helps you respond faithfully in various contexts. It helps you respond in different situations that you find yourself in. And in those different circumstances, your conscience will help you know what to do because the Holy Spirit will use it to direct you and to give you what you ought to do in those moments. That a good conscience helps you respond in various contexts. Now, Peter reminds his readers that a good conscience requires believers sometimes to give a reason for their faith, even though it may result in suffering. We see this in verse 13. It says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil evil. And so Peter is saying here that you will find yourself in a situation where you will have to give a response, that you may have to make a defense for why you believe what you do or why you believe what you believe as well. And we see this specifically in verse 15. To make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
The word make defense here is oftentimes associated with the word apologetics, which means the defense of your faith, of defense of what you believe. Now, what Peter is saying here is not saying that you need to be able to know every single nuance of the Christian faith, so whatever question that comes up, you might be able to answer it. But he's talking about that whenever an opportunity arises, that you as a believer have a responsibility to explain simply why you do what you do and why you believe what you believe. That you have to be able to give that particular explanation. And the way that we do that, and the reason why we do that, is so that we can have a clear conscience before God. Uh, We see this in verse 16, having a good conscience, so that we can be clear in our conscience when we have to give that response. Now, what will happen when we give a response for our faith? What happens when we give a response for what we believe is that we have to be prepared to experience some social suffering. Now, the word suffering is used twice here in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, and then also in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good. But what type of suffering is Peter talking about? He's talking about a form of social suffering because of verse 16, when you are slandered. The word slandered is, means when someone makes false accusations against you when you are not present. That people will say things about you that malign your character, your person. And that's the suffering that you should expect oftentimes when you stand up for what is right and what your conscience, led by the Spirit, tells you to do. Now, oftentimes, especially in the book of Acts, this idea of slander, the idea of social suffering, oftentimes leads to a mob being mobilized and then physical harm coming upon the believers of Christ. So Peter could also extend that idea of suffering all the way to physical suffering as well. Now, when we are given or in these opportunities and even in these contexts, God expects us to do what our conscience leads us to do. So we really have to reflect on what our conscience is saying in different contexts. Okay, let's say for instance, your friend invites you to watch a movie. And you're like, okay, there's nothing wrong with watching a movie. So you Google what the premise of the film is. You find out a little bit of its plot. And then you find out maybe that there's some sexual content in this particular film. And now your conscience is saying, warning. And you think to yourself, well, you know, recently sexual purity has been a really big struggle of mine. I'm not really sure if I should really go see this film. But then I never actually get to spend time with these friends either. I'm not really sure, should I go see it? Or should I refrain from seeing it? And if I refrain from seeing it, what will they think about me? Will they think I'm a prudent? You know, what will they say? And as you begin to reflect and think about what your conscience is saying, it may lead you to eventually say, you know, no. I think it's not good for me to go see this film. So you tell your friends, hey, thanks, but no thanks. And then your friends ask you, well, why, why, why are you not watching this film with us? Now, this is the opportunity for you to explain how your faith has shaped your conscience to refrain from watching this movie. Or let's say a friend sets you up on a date. And you're like, ooh, that's really nice of them. Right? And so you ask your friends, like, so is this person that you're thinking of setting, us up, setting me up on, is she a believer? And your friend's like, well, what does that have to do with anything? Right? It's just a date. 
And then this is your opportunity. Your conscience feels under biblical conviction that, you know, it's not good for me to date a non-believer. I believe that it's against what the Bible teaches, and it's an opportunity for you to explain to your friend that perhaps this might not be a good idea and how your faith shapes that particular conviction. And it may result in some social suffering. It may be resulting in some, what is wrong with you? Like, what is going on in your mind? Like, how could you live in this way that it's so first century and not the 21st century, right? And it could incur some suffering. But we also need to know that our conscience needs to be shaped. And Pastor Jason has talked about the idea of how our conscience needs to be calibrated. So we need to be able to allow the Word to really shape our convictions. It needs to shape how we're going to act in different moments, in different situations, by spending regular time in God's Word to know what it says, but also to sit under its teaching whether it be in Sunday service or in small group, so that we might be able to know what the principles of the word are and to apply it in different situations. Now, the Bible doesn't give specific instructions. It doesn't say in Ezra, thou shall use online dating. It doesn't say anything like that. Or, you know, maybe in 1 Corinthians, I will go date blank right? It doesn't give you specific directions of what I should wear in the morning, you know, whether or not I should go get Starbucks. It doesn't give you specifics, but it gives you principles by which you are to live by. And oftentimes, I think we need to be able to discern how to apply those different principles in different situations, rather than treating the Bible as some kind of magic eight ball that if we shake it hard enough, you know, that we'll be able to know what to do whether it be yes or no answers. But we need to be able to learn how to allow the principles of God's word to really shape our conscience in those moments to know what to do. And to also give us the encouragement, the strength, and also the conviction to explain to friends and to brothers and sisters in Christ sometimes why we may be unable to do some things and why we may be able to do some things as well. So for instance, I remember something I struggled with, especially in seminary. When I started seminary, we had a dress code, okay? And it was not like the dress code of the past where we had to wear suit and tie, but we had to wear a collared shirt and slacks. Now, midway through my seminary experience, they changed the dress code. Now you can actually wear jeans to class. And I was like, oh my word. Like, what am I going to do? I've worn slacks for the last three years. And every time I reached for the jeans in the morning, I just felt, oh, I can't do this. I can't wear jeans to school. It just it doesn't make sense. But everybody, other classmates will wear jeans to class, and yet my conscience had not yet been calibrated to do something that was perfectly fine, which is to wear jeans to class in seminary. Because that experience in the past had so shaped me. So that's another example where sometimes there's something that God's word is perhaps doesn't say much about where we have the freedom to be able to choose and to know that we have the freedom to do it. And that again requires an understanding of what God's word says. So we've addressed three different questions this morning. We talked about the idea of what makes a conscience good. It's a new identity in Christ that undergirds a good conscience. But then what gives us that new identity? It is Christ's suffering. 
that Christ's suffering secures us a new identity. And then what is the blessing of a good conscience? That it allows us to be able to respond faithfully and to respond in different contexts and different situations that we find ourselves in. And to be able to submit ourselves to how the Holy Spirit may be leading our conscience. So I remember in college, I had a conversation with a friend, uh, with a brother in Christ, and he helped me evaluate my conscience concerning bootlegged material, bootlegged films, bootlegged software. And after my conversation with him, I came to the conviction that using bootleg software or bootleg film is a form of stealing. I'm stealing someone's creativity and not giving credit where credit is due. And so my conscience now had become peaked and became moved. Now, there came a situation in college where my computer died, uh, the computer that I used freshman year. So midway through my college career, I had to get a new computer. So I bought a new computer. But then the question was, what would I use for my word processing software? Because in my old computer, I used a bootleg version of Microsoft Office. So the question is, what am I going to do? And I went to the bookstore, and I saw the price for Microsoft Office. At the time, student price was $30. And I was standing there, and I was thinking, $30? That's like my milk tea allowance for the quarter. Is it going to be worth it to spend the $30 to get Microsoft Office. And so my conscience, flesh, wrestling through it, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to get the software. So I buy the software, and my conscience was then a little bit more soothed, knowing that it had now been calibrated and moved to not rely or use bootleg software. Right? That oftentimes, again, that a good conscience will help us respond in different situations and contexts that we find ourselves in. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of a conscience and how through our faith in Christ, our conscience is now more sensitive to different situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in. And we pray in those moments that your Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, will be able to empower us and to be able to enable us to do what is pleasing to you, to do what would demonstrate love for you and also love for our neighbor. And we ask for your help and your aid, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.